When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. The world is a chaotic and beautiful place, but to take in the beauty, we first have to bring order to the chaos. To do that, though, I think we have to take responsibility for the state of our minds and our lives. How do you take responsibility for moving forward? I think the first step is to try and understand ourselves in sort of observable ways, which often we don't do, of taking stock of what is it that I know about myself? Uh, what, do, what am I aware of that may or may not have changed in me? We hide a lot from ourselves. So the idea of curiosity and self-scrutiny tells us a lot, right? It could tell us a lot, but it also tells us that there is so much of which we are not readily aware so our, our minds are like icebergs, right? With the, the conscious part of the mind above the water and the much larger part underneath, right? So, so understanding ourselves is often a much richer process, right? Than, than just taking an inventory of self, for example. And, and self-examination includes reflection, talking with others, sometimes psychotherapy, the kind of things we do to, to grow ourselves, right? So reading and learning. So the, the process of understanding ourselves is, uh, taking stock in a sort of inventory kind of way, but that's really the beginning. And even that is not easy. Your life is still your responsibility. Right? Like my life is my responsibility from this moment forward. There are people who can help me. There are people who love me and care about me and, you know, people who can take care of me professionally. Like all those things are true, but I'm responsible for myself. And, and often taking responsibility for ourselves going forward, we have to feel that we can do that, right? I have to not be terrified of taking responsibility for myself or think that, oh, I can't do that, right? I, I'm, I'm cursed and it'll never go well or I'm incompetent. I don't know how to take care of myself. And, I think the way that we find it within ourselves to take responsibility for ourselves is often to release ourselves from the lessons of the trauma. If the that makes sense. Lessons of the trauma? Right. So, so trauma. The false lessons? Right. Trauma makes false lessons within us. So if I think I was hit by a drunk driver and it's my fault because I shouldn't have been out at night, right? It's my fault I shouldn't have driven that way home. It's my fault because I got mad at one of my children earlier and, and I wasn't thinking straight after I let that anger come out, right? Then there's a reflexive shame, 
right? That is telling me that I, I should be afraid, right? That I'm incompetent. I can't take care of myself, right? Or maybe God has it out for me or fate has it out for me or whatever it may be. And we have to understand that in order to be able to put things in their proper place of, look, something happened to me that I couldn't control, right? I mean, I, I'm driving along, I'm being safe, I'm being reasonable. And someone hits me, blindsides me and I'm really hurt or now I'm living with the consequences of that maybe for the rest of my life. And the, the reflexive shame of that is, is so strong, you know, probably because of a combination of evolutionary mechanisms that, you know, if something doesn't go right and a person feels shame, a person is so attuned to that, right? And that may have made sense in um, evolutionary stages of human development. I mean, then that I don't know. I know that it's in us. So I can try and think about what the reasons might be evolutionarily. But also, you know, our society is in so many ways absurd, bizarre, right? It doesn't tell us very, very basic facts that we need to know. So like traumas happen to us, right? Big and small. And they create reflexive shame. Like we, we observe that, we observe its consequences, but yet we don't say that, right? We, we have a different societal model. That means like, oh, just don't think about it and think about other things, right? Just life's got to go forward or or if people don't want to talk about it at all, and then shame and responsibility or fear festers inside of us, right? We, so, so our response to trauma is to hide it away, is to not talk about the changes in us. And regardless of what the biology or the evolutionary aspects are, we know that's facilitated by a society that doesn't understand how to look at it, right? If we thought, okay, there's been major trauma, What's the first priority we as a society have when as a responsibility to that person or even to society of wanting productive citizens in society, healthy citizens, right? Would be to, oh my gosh, we need to wrap around that person. We need to make sure that resources that help that person talk and express, express and understand what's inside of them. Like we don't do that. You know, at most somebody might knock on the door once or, or lock on the phone really once or twice. You want to talk, you were in the hospital, but we don't do that. And sometimes never ever. Is that death or that injury, is that trauma talked about again? And then it festers inside of people and it changes people. And this is what we see when, you know, the, the death certificate I might see of a patient is car accident, accidental overdose. But, but I know that that's not the cause of death. The, the cause of death is the trauma that I, I well know about and, and, and where it drove that person. But it's very, very hard. To, to be able to express and to have the help wrap around someone in ways that are just rational, right? In the context of the data we have, it's, it's not what happens in our modern society. The traumas hit away, the problems fester and grow. Okay. So there's uh, a lot of things in there that I want to tease apart. So one of them sure. is I've heard you talk about the, in America, we are five times more likely to prescribe drugs for somebody mm -hmm. dealing with trauma than say, or I guess just in general, than in the um, Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And your hypothesis, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that a part of the Dutch culture is taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so I want to contrast that with what you were just saying, where one of the responses that you want to see society reorient themselves towards is wrapping themselves around that person. Mm -hmm. And I want to make this problem as hard as possible so that we deal with the person who's listening, who I really want 
a beautiful life moving forward. I want them to to actually solve this problem. But I'm going mm-hmm. to assume they can't get other people to wrap around them, mm-hmm. probably partly because they they either before the trauma didn't know how to bridge that mm-hmm. gap or now post-trauma, they don't know how to bridge that gap. So starting from the idea of taking responsibility, mm-hmm. how do we do that in a way where the person is doing it from a position of self-love, not self-loathing, right? but that they can get themselves to a point where then society may be able to respond well. But I want to first assume no one's coming to save you, right? which is my baseline right. thesis in life, that it is, even though like one of the first things I'm going to tell people is loving relationships is critically important. However, I think you have to approach life with the belief, no one's coming to save me. I have to do it myself. And so how does one pull themselves out of the shame spiral if others aren't wrapping themselves around them? Mm-hmm. The first thing I would say is a person has to run countercurrent to a societally determined medical system that is not going to change in the short term and that pushes away from health. So we have a medical system that prioritizes throughput, right? And throughput- How prior- fast can I see patients? Yeah, and how, how many how many patients can be seen in an hour, right? I mean, how many primary care doctors? I, I think the lifeblood of the health of all of us right, are suffering under systems that that um, think it's reasonable and rational that they're going to have giant panels of patients and see four people an hour, mm-hmm. maybe five if someone else is out sick, right? So we we shortchange all of us, right? And then we have a system that is based on like what is the bottom line now? Like wh- what is the bottom line? in the insurance industry, in the pharmaceutical industry. And look, I'm all for health insurance and I'm all for medications, right? But we have a system that is so out of balance that it prioritizes throughput. And because then speed of like, okay, how can how much can I listen to you? Like this symptom, that symptom, let me write a prescription and okay, got to get you on your way, right? Because I got to take three breaths, right? After 14 and a half minutes before this, the next person comes in, right? That is understandably, of course, that's going to rely on heavily on medicines, right? It's a lot easier to write prescriptions than it is to talk to people. Okay. Right? So if step one is don't fall prey to a system that's just going to give you medication and move you on your way, Going back to something you said earlier, which is we have to put things in their proper place. Yes. How do I do that? So I'm not just going to medicate, but I need to understand how to put things in their place. So let's say I'm following what you've said. So I'm looking at myself. I notice the changes. I'm going to try to pull myself out of the death spiral by Mm -hmm. putting things in their proper place, but I don't know what that means. So what is the proper place for trauma? So I think- a person is best served by taking stock of what's going on inside of them, which doesn't mean that we have to understand ourselves and what the trauma has done to us, right? Because that, if that were there, the person would probably be in a different place, right? Like there's, there's fear and confusion and like things aren't going well, right? So it's, it's taking stock of that. And recognizing what level is it at, right? If it's at a level where a person really doesn't want to be alive anymore, is having suicidal thoughts or plans, then like that's the time to figure out, like, I need to go to a hospital. Right. And, and if I go to a hospital and, and I'm sitting there for 12 hours in a waiting room and no one is coming to see me and I can't take it anymore. Like I have to go to another hospital. Right. So, so we have to be perseverant in getting what we need because as you said, no one's going to reach out and help us. Right. So we take stock of what is it that I need? So in the situation where life may be at risk. Okay. It's a hospital. Right. In other situations, 
we can also take stock of what our resources are. So for example, if you have insurance and you just call the insurance and they say, gosh, we're so sorry, something awful has happened. Uh, there'll be a therapy appointment for you in seven weeks, right? Then like you, you have to be the squeaky wheel. Like you have to fight for that, right? You have to fight for what is owed to you, right? Like you, you have insurance, you should be getting help, right? Let's take that as a basic premise. If the help is not helpful, then you have to fight for yourself. Do you have baseline beliefs that you want the patient to believe in? So for instance, you're worth fighting for. No matter what happened to you, you're still a valuable human being. Absolutely, 100%. And if you're not sure if you're a valuable human being, whether you can link it to something that happened to you or not, that is a reason to get help. That in and of itself is always a reason to get help. We're all valuable human beings, right? So if you're questioning that, then yes. You look around you and say, what help is there for me to get? And if there is no insurance and there is no resources, then a person can try and understand, like, what is it the community can provide, right? There are often resources that may come for free or very deeply discounted through, for example, religious organizations or other charitable organizations, right? There are helping people in the world. Again, they're not easy to find, right? Or they can be that it's not, they're not easy to find. But if we, if a person says like, look, I'm not accepting what's going on in me or what's happened to me or that that's, this could be going on in me and there's nothing for me, right? Then, then we need to look at what's around us, investigate, think, ask, right? Because we need to guide ourselves to help. As you said, no one's going to come take responsibility for us. Like we don't live in a society that functions that way. And often if you go for help, you get something that's not helpful, right? I think if someone comes who's very unhealthy and overweight and out of shape and starting to have cardiovascular problems. And they, they come and see a physician and they walk away with three prescriptions and don't change their habits, right? I mean, think about that compared to someone who goes to a physician who has more time to sit down and talk to them and say, look, here's what needs to change in your life, which is why other societies, it's a reason, right? Other societies use less medicines, than us, but, but it also sheds light on how we throw medicines. We should throw short-term solutions or alleged solutions, right? Like medicines don't solve trauma, right? Can medicines help with symptoms? Can medicines be in your corner as you go to fight something? If before trauma, you didn't have panic attacks and now something happened and you're having panic attacks, well, medicines can help with that. And that's a great use of medicines. But the idea that I'm going to take stock of you and say, you're a person who has panic attacks, I'll give you medicine to not have panic attacks, and that's the end of the story, hasn't fixed anything, mm. right? And that's why when people don't get better, which the system then says, oh, the person failed the intervention, right? It's now we even use that terminology, like, oh, you failed this kind of therapy, you failed that kind of medicine, like, how about we failed you? In how many ways, and it's not reasonable to think that, that people would get better by and large or en masse with the help that we give them. So we have all, all these statistics, right? They, they tell us nothing except the fact that we have a broken system that isn't actually looking at people. If we invest in people in the long term, well, people get better and society gets healthier, right? I mean, we know that from, even from the perspective of education, right? Like early childhood experiences, trying to avoid early childhood trauma, getting education to people at stages of life where they can really take in uh, the, the hope and, and possibilities of the future. Like we know this makes sense. It doesn't any less make sense when we're talking about our own health as individuals or as a society. Okay. So if I am um, obese and I come in and I'm, I have a heart condition, 
the habits that I would put people on exercise, better diet, uh, looking at biomarkers in order to make sure that we're moving in the right direction, like, uh, body fat percentage, uh, blood sugar, uh, lipids, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So it's, it's a pretty known cascade of things that one should do. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes with trauma, is there a similar set of habits and changes that they would need to make? And are there markers that are objective that we can look at? Yeah. So it's not quite as straightforward as, you know, for example, taking blood and then, you know, getting certain very clear biomarkers of internal states and potentially of biological change, right? But there are absolutely markers and, and the markers become evident if you sit down and talk with someone, right? So, so one example can be a defensive structure, right? We all have defensive structures, which, which define like, how do we navigate the world? Like, what do I have to arm myself against the slings and arrows, right, of a world that brings a lot of, of difficulty, right? And what we see sometimes is a defensive structure that, for example, changes after trauma, right? So w- one example is one aspect of a healthy defensive structure is sublimation. So, so I'm feeling something that's very, that's distressing, but inside I, I want to turn it into something that's productive, right? So I, I have, I feel like aggression and some anger and frustration in me. And you know what? I can take that out in the gym and it helps me be healthier, right? It's like that, that kind of thing, right? And you can see, oh, if, if you and I are sitting down and talking and you're coming, right, for help, right? Presumably that's why we're sitting down and talking, right? And you're telling me that you're depressed. I'm saying, okay, like I want to understand the details because I don't know anything from just that. Right now, let's say we start talking and I start learning more about you. And I see like, wow, your defensive structure has really changed. You know, you're telling me about a lot of adaptive ways of responding. And now maybe you're acting out more, right? Or maybe using a substance to soothe, right? Or maybe using denial or avoidance. And, you know, we start to see then, oh, there's changes in a person. And look, this is not what happens all the time, but the vast majority of what I have taken care of over a long time, over two decades of doing this, has been created by trauma, whether it's depression, it's substance abuse, it's panic attacks, it's interpersonal violence, right? It's coming from trauma. So we don't always identify traumatic change. And it's not always dramatic, right? It can be the accumulation of smaller traumas, like denigration, being seen as less than over and over and over and over again. But if you really want to understand the person, you often learn exactly this, like defensive structure has changed. The person is different. They see their hopes and prospects in a different way, right? And 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 here's the key. They often don't know it. Trauma happens, changes their behavior, but they're not conscious of the change in behavior? Well, it changes us inside. Mm-hmm. So like behavior is a manifestation. Do you mean physically right? or like, it, are we talking about it lays down new neural pathways or are you talking purely uh, either a frame of reference, which we'll probably need to define or behavioral? Sure. So behavior is just the final manifestation, right? So w- the changes we say are psychological. You think, okay, what does that mean? Right. Everything that's psychological is biological. Right. I mean, our psychology arises from our brains. Our, our brains are composed of cells and fluids and rather the same as the, the rest of our bodies. Right. We're composed of neurons that are firing in incredibly complicated ways across incredibly complicated systems and that changes. Right. So, so this is not 
um, a Pollyanna assertion that like everything is trauma and we're going to pay attention to it and we're going to get better. It's based in hard science. And, and I'll give you two examples. So there may be two pathways. I'm simplifying, right? But, but, but it's, it, this is really kind of how it goes, right? Where there may be two pathways inside of me if something negative happens, right, to me. And one pathway could be like, damn it, that's not what I wanted, but like, I'm going to bring myself to where I'm going to do it better, right? Another pathway could be like, what a loser you are. Like, you never do anything right, right? Look, I've got both pathways inside of me, right? And what determines where the energy goes, right, is, is how the linkages are between the neurons in those pathways. So if something happens to me and I feel very, very bad about myself, you know, it starts to foster the negative pathways, right? Or if I've said 500 times over, you know, compared to 30 times down the other pathways that I'm a loser, what's wrong with me? Like th- that's where the energy is going to go mm. because those neuronal linkages are stronger. Like it's, it, it, it's, neurobiologically traceable, right? Down to what happens. I mean, we don't understand it completely, of course, but we understand the changes that happen within us. So yes, it's psychological because it's neurobiological and and that's how it it is behavioral. It's ultimately neurobiological, then psychological is a manifestation on top of it. And then that determines our behavior. An example that is even more stark is that traumas can determine how old we are. Okay, so we think like, what does that mean? Like my, my birthday is my birthday, right? Okay, your birthday is your birthday in the sense that you're always going to have a birthday and we can always calculate forward and say, this is how old you are. Does that really tell us how old you are? By the calendar, it does. But I don't really care about the calendar compared to my body, right? I mean, my, my body's determining how old I really am inside, right? And and it, after major traumas, there's there's great research that shows us that there's an increased aging in Cells, you know, research into telomeres, like this aging science, right? Tells us that if you've had very significant trauma, the cascade of problems neurologically, biologically, endocrinologically, mm-hmm. from the, the top of your head to the tip of your toe means, you know, you might be 45, but really 52, right? You might be 65, but really 70, right? But like, that's real. Right. That's true. If you look at, at measures of aging without major trauma, you can back map to how old the person is basically. Right. But with major trauma, that person got older. That very, very terrifying. And the fact that, um, depression specifically, I don't know how linked it is to trauma specifically, but depression mm-hmm. predicts an increase in heart attack, which is crazy. Right. So I, I want to stay on this idea of putting yes. things in their place because as I think about the habits that somebody that has encountered a trauma would need to imbue in their life, me as a layperson, the things that I would tell them to do would be, uh, first, I want to eliminate all the biological things that might be causing this. So you're going to want to clean up your diet. So mm-hmm. just going to the biological knock-on effect of shortening your lifespan There's just realities to be faced around inflammation would be a big one. So I'm going to target things that cause inflammation. So stress is one of them. So let's get you meditating. Uh, Diet is another. Mm -hmm. Let's clean up your diet, which we'll call whole food, low sugar, Um, getting sleep, getting sun exposure. But the tricky one and the one that is going to keep you in business forever is how do I conceptualize of the trauma and my role in it? What I want to understand is... You, you get somebody who's just had an acute event. Mm-hmm. In fact, your, your book opens, the intro to your book was written by Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. And she said she basically woke up in your 
presence and was like, whoa, I'm being told I just had a psychotic break. And I assume from all the pressure of performing, because I think it was while she was on tour. And in that moment, how do we begin? Obviously, it doesn't need to be with her. So you're not talking specifically about a person, but do we first need to know exactly what happened? Then do we need to know how they think about what happened? Do we need to then understand how they think about their role and what happened. And so for instance, my instinct would be to get somebody on CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, but I've heard you say that it's maybe not the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love to understand how mechanistically, Mm -hmm. how do we put things in its place? Like what are the beliefs that you try to imbue people with what I'll call the frame of reference? So Mm -hmm. your beliefs and your values, essentially your beliefs about yourself Mm -hmm. in the world, your value system about uh, how, you ought to be and how the world ought to be would be the only way I would know how to attack this problem of getting people to put things in the right place. Yes. Okay. I will speak to that, but if it's okay, I'd like to speak first to you had said, okay, there are things you can do, right? Like you can get the basics, right? Of start taking better care of yourself, right? Have a better diet, start exercising, meditate, right? And then the tricky one is this, the psychological one, right? But I would argue because of this one, they're all tricky, right? It's not easy to change one's diet, to rest better, right? Because they're emotionally dysregulated. you, You have to think that one, you're worth it and you can achieve it. Right? And after traumas, and again, it's not necessarily major traumas. So it can be the trauma of denigration over time, the trauma of being seen as less than, whether that's interpersonal abuse in one household or it's, it's societally determined, you know, through how people are seen and, and can be then oppressed through how they're seen. So, so it can be dramatic. It can be non-dramatic, but it doesn't matter. Like if the end point is that that person maybe doesn't see themselves as worth taking care of, or if they do think, hope oh, maybe they're worth taking care of, it's not going to be okay anyway, then those things aren't going to happen. And that's very, very common. It's very, very common. You know, in the worst of my traumas, I still had my car serviced all the time. You know, I, I get my car serviced every six months. I want my car to break down. I want to take care of it. Yet I was flogging myself into the ground, right? Because I valued the car more than I valued myself. Right? And that's not uncommon. Do you mean that literally? Or is that just like one of those, uh, you're a conscientious person and you know that you ought, going back to value system, you ought to take care of this thing that you spent money on and it's just going to shorten the lifetime. That feels like conscientiousness in play more than that you right. actually value it more than yourself. I could be wrong. Well, so where the, the conscious and the unconscious right, are different, right? And it's the unconscious that matters. I mean, if you had come to me in that state of time and said, hey, do you care about your car more than yourself? I would have said, absolutely not. Like, it's a thing, right? But then it would have been interesting, right? If, if someone next, you know, maybe my, my future self could have gone back and said to myself, well, that's interesting because you're behaving exactly the opposite. Like you don't actually care more in the sense of like care meaning something right? Because you're not taking care of yourself anywhere near like you're taking care of the car. So so what's conscious is different from what's unconscious. Now, that's a period of time where I felt a lot of responsibility for my brother's death. I felt like, oh my God, like I'm depressed too. And what's going to happen to me? And I couldn't see a future. And my brother 
died by suicide. And, and after that, when I think about like, that was a period of time where I took way better care of the car than myself. And I would have told you, of course, I wouldn't do that as I was doing exactly that. Why? Because I didn't think I was worth taking care of. I felt uh, such a sense of shame over what had happened and what it had, how it had impacted my family. And then also, I thought, even if I can get myself to think, well, there are people who love me, who think I'm worth taking care of, like, it's not going to be okay anyway, right? He and I were very similar. We looked similar. We act, acted similar in so many ways. And I, I couldn't see how life was could possibly be okay. So this is the evil of the trauma, right? That it, it takes away right, the ability to to see ourselves for what we're worth and also to see change. Because I didn't think about myself that way before. But I was not aware of, there was no curiosity in me or even awareness that like, whoa, you, it is all changed. Like, was it always true that you were never worthwhile and you were never going to get better? Were you wrong before this? Did something change now and you think differently? You know, I mean, I ended up getting myself some therapy, which was very, very fortunate. And I think it just required, if my memory recollects, you know, is that it was just basic therapy to help me understand things because I understood nothing when I finally got to a desperate enough place to like call the number on the back of the card and whisper that I needed some therapy because I felt ashamed of that too. So, so in order to get to the point of, how am I going to navigate my life forward? How am I going to understand what's going on inside of me? We have to get over those initial hurdles. So I, I, I didn't mean to not address the question, but I wanted to go back to that. because so you, you were talking about, well, what happens in therapy? Someone's sitting in front of you, but almost always, not always, but almost always think about the selection, right? For somebody to be sitting across from me talking about this, right? I mean, they have to get there, right? So, so there has to be some thought of, you know, I'm worth it. I'll get myself there. Maybe things will go okay. I mean, people don't always think that, but, but there's so many people who are never sitting in front of someone because our society doesn't help or teach us what I think we should be helped to understand and taught even as far back as elementary school, right? Which is like the, how the responses happen in us, all right? And, and how we can change without knowing it. We can hide ourselves away and we can think differently about ourselves, but we don't teach that. So tragically, but what would people we teach? How, how would we help. teach them to think differently? Well, we could engender a curiosity about self and we could teach directly. So just one example is bullying, right? Like people who are bullied very, very often, the vast majority of the time, do not get any education or understanding about like what is going on, right? So that who is doing the bullying? Like why? Why is that person responding in ways that allow that person to say feel powerful, right? By belittling someone else, right? That like there's something going on here where the person who's doing the bullying has some deficit of self, right? And is trying to make up for the deficit of self by, uh, because that person is a foot taller, being able to thump the person who's not a foot taller, right? Let me ask you. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, 
pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things, and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online, and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Because this will get to the heart of what I want to better understand. Uh, Kid comes to you, he's being bullied. Do you send him to therapy or MMA? Well, so I'm not a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I'll see people as young as about 16, but, but the best guidance. Get a 25 year old then that's being bullied. What Mm -hmm. I, what I want to understand is, are we trying to make the person more courageous and more likely to stand up to the bully? Or are we trying to help the person look inward 
and um, understand themselves. Cause I really want to get to the thing that people need to do if they're in this situation. Right. Well, it very much depends on the person. Right. So, so think about there are people who could go to MMA and learn a lot of defensive skills that make them feel less afraid, uh, that maybe let them self-assert more in, in reasonable ways. And like, that's really good for that person. And if called upon to defend themselves, maybe they do it better, do a better job of it than they would have. Right. But you could see how other people would go to two MMA classes and then get themselves killed by confronting people. Right. Or utilize the ability then to perhaps learn something and be violent, right. To then enact the bullying. I mean, people do that too, if there's not enough self-knowledge, right? So so like, who is the person? What will they gain from that, right? But understanding ourselves better is always a good thing, right? Which is why that's what we're we're trying to understand, right? It's it's a process of trying to understand oneself so we can understand not just what has gone on in me, but what are my steps to changing that? Mm. Yeah, that's why I want to understand. So what cognitive behavioral therapy Mm -hmm. Uh, was a profound find for me mm-hmm. in terms of the sense of you need to pattern interrupt. So if mm-hmm. you're repeating something, you talked about this earlier, you become what you repeat. Mm-hmm. If you're repeating something negative, you have to pattern interrupt that. You have to one, recognize that you're doing it. Two, you have to interrupt it. And then three, I have found mm-hmm. if you replace that with something empowering, you you just feel differently mm-hmm. in, instantly. And mm-hmm. this is Uh, To me, this is all a game of neurochemical management through Mm -hmm. the adjustment of your frame of reference. So what you believe about yourself, what you believe about the world, what you value in yourself, what you value, think should the world should Mm -hmm. value. And so as you take control of your thoughts, which is the very thing I would be trying to get Mm -hmm. somebody to do, you take control of your thoughts and then you put in something that allows them to recontextualize themselves, radically recontextualize themselves. Mm-hmm. So from victim to um, hero, I don't know what the exact word to mm-hmm. use is there, but certainly of your own life, um, that feels like where we would want to head. But um, so before we get to the but, what's your take on cognitive behavioral therapy? Mm-hmm. Is it useful for this moment of getting people to recontextualize themselves in the trauma? Yeah. So I'm not against cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it is a great tool in certain situations, and it can be a great tool in combination with other tools, right? But it is not a substitute for understanding. And cognitive behavioral therapy, it happens to lend itself to boundaries around the therapy process. So the idea of, okay, we can package like 10 sessions of CBT, right? For uh, something that's afflicting a person. So, okay, 10 sessions of CBT for depression, right? But, you know, maybe depression is amenable to 10 sessions of CBT and it can get better in some way, but maybe that person needs in-depth trauma work. Like where did depression come from? Like what's the manifestation of the depression? There's so much more to understand and the packaging of CBT as it's going to solve all the problems really because the packaging lends itself to cost containment and throughput is a huge problem, right? Very often CBT is used to polish the hood when you need to get under the hood and look at what's in the engine. Right. And there are people who can pretty readily back map. Like, like you said, if you can use CBT to interrupt negative thought processes, right? And then you're inserting positive thought processes that you're not just making up that are true, right? That, that, that then call your attention to the, to the facets of you that are the ones you want to feel proud of and the one you want to utilize going forward. Like, that's great. 
But one, you have to come up with that. What are you putting in its place? Why are you putting in its place? What does it mean? People can back map to that, that, right, I'm changing from a recurrent self-denigrating negative thought that has no place in my life to, to redirecting to what really I know is true about me. Okay. It may be that some people can do that, right? But many people don't, right? They, they don't back map to, to the understanding from the CBT process, right? So, so the idea is, yes, CBT is a tool. Like there are many, many, many tools. And whatever we're doing, if we're in helping professions, let's have all the arrows in our quiver, right? And CBT is a great arrow to have in the quiver. It's not a substitute for understanding. It's not a solution to everything. But because it's packageable in a system that values throughput and cost containment, it gets used for too much. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, I don't know if there are stats on this, but if you know, I would love to know. Are smart people more or less likely to commit suicide? I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. To In that. your practice, what's your guess? Who's more amenable to treatment? People, because when you talk about like understanding yourself and all of that, I worry that one of two things is going to be true. Either people that have a higher intellect are better able to do that work, or people that have a higher intellect are more likely to become neurotic and looping because they can really understand deeply all the ways that they're a terrible person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know which is true. I think, I think a reason I don't know the answer to that is at least in my practice, intelligence has not been a, a, a direct variable for suicide. So intelligence is important. Like, do I want to understand how intelligent someone is? Absolutely, right? But it's not where the money's at, so to speak, right? Yeah, what is uh, the, the predictor? So can a person connect with other people? Hmm. Is a person so lost in themselves at times through depression, through misery, uh, through anxiety, in many cases through trauma? Are they, are they in themselves in a way that is so blocked from connection with others? Right? Is if you, if you look at how we help each other, it's through the people that we are, right? There have been enough studies done showing that you put a good person in the therapist's seat, that person can help people through different modalities, right? Because they're doing something more than, oh, I'm deploying this modality, that modality, right? They're, they're employing themselves through a modality, right? But in, in order to do that, why, why do that, right? Because you're trying to connect with someone, right? And often what happens in the therapy process is something called positive projective identification, which is the idea that if you feel so ashamed of yourself and so hopeless and so afraid, right? That you're shut down inside of yourself and we can develop some rapport and some trust and some ideas and thoughts can pass between us. And my real and true belief that like, you can be okay. Like you're not cursed. Your life doesn't have to go down the tubes. Like, oh my God, I see more qualities about you than I could shake a stick at that are great ones. Like if, if I, like I see that and I know that and I learned that from you, if we can be connected, then the person can take that, start taking that in, right? Along with understanding of, you know, if you didn't feel ashamed of yourself before the trauma and now you do, let's talk about why, right? That's not because you're weak or because there's something wrong with you. It's because you're human, 
So if understanding and trust are built, then that positive projective identification means a person takes in how you feel about them, which is how they can feel about them, very often how they did feel about themselves. Now, I didn't come out of the womb thinking that my car was worth more than me, right? And I didn't think that when I was growing up. You know, there were people who loved me. I felt good about myself. And so so th- there was something in me that I could then get back to of like, right, like you did feel differently. Right? But often we need help through understanding measures and through human connection measures. That's what's important. If you tell me, what do I want to understand? I would not ask, you give me three questions about somebody or, or, and I'm trying to help and guide them. It, wouldn't not, it would not be how smart are they or intelligent. It wouldn't be that. But I, I would certainly ask, can they, are they empathically attuned? Can they connect? What are the other two? Oh, you know, they would all be about sense of self. You know, is this a person who has a, who has had stable relationships over time, right? Because it tells you a lot about a person that like they can connect, they they can have a give and take, right? It's, you know, I don't know what exactly what those three questions would be, but I'll, I'll tell you, they would they would be my best effort to discern down to um, understanding that person's ability to have positive internal states, mm. right? I mean, that's what I would be looking for because that's what would tell me where do I think at least at first blush, can I really help you? Right. Or like, am I really worried where I, I might think, Oh, is this a person who, um, who I might more direct towards a higher level of care? Right. Sometimes if I see someone and what's a higher level of care. So, so maybe someone who has, who has suicidal thoughts and I'm trying to understand, like, should they go to a hospital or I mean, can we really do this outside of that setting? Right. And, and a lot of that is determined by, do I feel like we can really, connect, you know, and, and that's so important because that's what makes all, that's what makes all the difference. And it's not because you want that person to like stay alive because now you're their doctor. So it's not that, right? It's because someone else really seeing us, not recoiling from us. You know, I, I had some surprise that that therapist wanted to see me, even though like, gosh, this thing had happened that was so awful and shameful. Like I remember having thoughts like that. And you know, how many people have said to me, like, they're surprised that I don't recoil mm. when they tell me about the death of their child, when they tell me about being raped, when they tell me about being denigrated and bullied over years, and they're surprised I don't recoil because they've internalized the shame of trauma. And even someone not recoiling, let alone someone having just a human reaction to, my goodness, right? I'm so sorry. Let's. I want to help as best I can. Right, that makes a difference, a huge difference to people, and it's that that we want and need if we're going to help. That's maybe the most uh, insightful thing about trauma um, I've heard. The idea that this really is about connection. Um, I would love to hear, and I, I fully understand this. If we gave you a week to think about it, these would not be the three questions, but I'd love a third question that helps you understand somebody's internal state, mm-hmm. whether they're capable of positive internal states. I would want to get at if that person is aware of or in touch with the goodness inside of them. So do people normally break down sobbing at that point and say, there is no goodness left inside of me? Like I can just imagine real trauma? Usually it's something not asked directly, right? But if I were, let's say we're talking and I'm worried about you, right? And I'm trying to understand and I want to, and I think, okay, 
gosh, I see that there's an ability to be empathic, right? Because we seem kind of connected, right? And there's a warmth in you that I can see when we're connected, or even if you're very sad or depressed, you know, you're, I can tell you're responding to me in ways that read my affect. And, and I sort of learn that about you, right? I think, okay, there's something really positive, right? And then I also then learn that you've been able to have some relationships over time. Okay, these are good factors, right? I wouldn't ask directly about goodness in you, but I might say something like, actually, things have been so difficult, right? And when's the last time, like, you really felt warmth or helping from someone towards you or from you towards someone else. Now, I might be interested in both ways, but I'm most interested in that moment, maybe maybe in that moment in, have you, are you able to do things for others, right? Because there are people who see that, they're, they're depressed, they're, they're terribly distressed, but they still understand inside of them that they can do good things for others. You know, they can still care for that child. Uh, they can still go do productive work. They can still volunteer somewhere. They still know that, oh, you know, somebody... You know, somebody felt the grocery store and like broke something. I, man, it's, it's terrible. I helped the person up. Like, okay, you see that there's something in you, right? And, and it's that awareness of, of goodness inside of oneself. Because like someone who doesn't feel goodness, they can see someone fall and go the other way. Not because they're a bad person, but because they feel like they're going to make it worse if they get closer. Like, what, I got to keep my badness away from that person. I'll trip and fall on them. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm putting words to something that are just a feeling, right? But, but I don't think those, those things are not exaggerations after two decades of doing what I do mm. for a living. Like, they're real feeling states inside of us. So I, I would want to understand that too, because if those three things are intact, then I'll be much more likely to feel like, Okay, we can, we can have a plan. We can, you know, things, things can go forward. It, it decreases my worry. And also in situations that might not be that worrisome, right? For it might tell me like, I really think that things can be a lot better. You know, I start to have a read. And I also, while I'm, or having that conversation, I'm also coming into some touch with what you know about yourself, right? Because there are plenty of people who tell me about the longitudinal friendships and family relationships they have it over years and years while they're telling me that nobody cares about them and there's nobody in their life, right? So, so you know, you learn from what people overtly say, but don't rely on the part of the iceberg that's above the surface of the water, which is also the message to the person that's sitting at home. Like, if we don't just know ourselves by thinking about ourselves. It's not how it works. Our brains don't work that way. Talk, write, learn more through other means. You know, that, that's important. because so if you think we know everything about ourselves, it's often the reflex shame. It's the reflex negatives that are telling us that, but that's not the truth. All right. So somebody that really, though, does believe that nobody loves them, uh, how can you convince them otherwise? Well, we have to understand their life. Right? Like we have to, to understand that, right? Like, is that really true? And, Sometimes it's true, right? I, I wrote a story in the in the book that I wrote about a, a person who had Cotard syndrome who thought he was dead. Yeah, that was because crazy. no one had cared for so long that he was alive. Wow. I mean, it was so just terribly sad. And he was gregarious and like funny and nice, and he's exactly the guy you'd want living next door to you, right? But he'd just been alone for so long that it was true, right? Now there's a different set of things to try and do then. Not everyone who isn't in, in that place has Cotard syndrome and thinks they're dead, right? I mean, there are ways we can start talking about the goodness inside. If I remember from person. the book though, you weren't able to convince him that he was alive. No, once a person gets to that point, which is by and large through the literature, because it's the kind of case one might see a couple of times throughout a, a, a career, right? Then it's very, very difficult 
once a person gets to that point, but it was an, it's an extreme example. That's so enlightening about the way the brain works. I want to take a second to linger on this. So the book's called Trauma, by the way, read it. Fantastic. I think people think they're misunderstanding what you're saying. He actually thought he was dead. Like he yes. knew, hey, I'm here, I'm in your office, but he thought it was absolutely comical, like actually comical. He thought it was funny that you were trying to check his heart. He's like, right. I'm already dead. Like, what are you doing? Like when they take me away to the morgue, right. are you still going to come and try to check my yes. heart? Ha, ha, ha. It's really true. And yes. But the punchline is this guy never stops thinking he's dead. Right. And the fact that, okay, one, if you take an infant and deny them right. physical affection, they die, which is already weird. But the fact that as an adult, you've already lived some enormous portion of your life, you know how the world works, and you can become so profoundly lonely that you end up believing you're dead and your body hasn't caught up, which I don't even understand how they make that logic work, but they do, that this happens enough that there's a name for the syndrome. Right. That's which, by the way, it's not really logic. Bananas. It doesn't work in logic, right? I mean, I'm dead and I'm talking to you and have a heartbeat. That's logically impossible. What are right? they? Would but you let them listen with the stethoscope to oh, hear their no, own heart? No, because logic doesn't matter when logic runs up against strong emotion, right? Like logic never, ever, ever wins. So logic says, "Hey, you're alive. I mean, you got a heartbeat. You're talking. You're you know, you're having lunch, right?" Um, but if emotion says that you're dead, it doesn't matter what logic says. Never does it. It's never logical to run into a burning building. But if someone you love is in it, you know. People run right in, right? Like, like logic doesn't matter when emotion is stronger. Those feel very different to me. So I will say that frame of reference is what makes the person run into the burning building because they, like you said, they love somebody inside of it or they want to be the kind of person that runs towards danger to help other people like that. I get now off camera, we were talking about frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Frame of reference for me is very much a mix of biology. So evolution and your own beliefs that you've taken control of. So I think that one's very much an interplay mm -hmm. of, we mm -hmm. probably have an instinct to protect people in our tribe already, or certainly our family. And then on top of that, if you layer like, that's the kind of person I want to be, mm -hmm. um, I can see why somebody would do that. But Cotard syndrome, where your brain is trying to understand why you are profoundly alone. Mm -hmm. It is trying to understand why it is in just a profound amount of pain. Right. And it suddenly goes, Oh, I'm dead. And I don't know if it reaches for that because it's even more painful to think you're unworthy of love, no. or it's even more painful to think I have chosen to live my life in a way that's so dumb. Forgive me. I know the audience is freaking out right now, but that this is what I'm saying. They would have to think that I've lived my life in a way that's so dumb. No one wants to be around me and I can't bear to take responsibility mm -hmm. for that. And instead the brain, instead of embracing those very simple, straightforward solutions, or reasons, it says, oh, you're dead. That, that to me is an insight about how the human mind works, that anybody that wants to live life well needs to understand that's what you're up against. That's how weird your mind is. That like one of my favorite stories, if you destroy somebody's ability to generate uh, long-term memories, so like the movie Memento, mm -hmm. you walk into the room, this is a real study. You walk into the room, you meet this person, doctor puts a pin in their hand, they shake their hand, it pokes them, it hurts, they jerk their hand back. Why'd you do that? They leave the room, they come back, the person, the patient does not remember meeting them. They reintroduce themselves, they stick out their hand to shake it, the person won't take their hand. Right. But they don't remember why. But when you ask them, they will make up a reason. 
Yes. They will say, oh, people that wear white lab coats, I never shake their hands. Right. I don't shake hands on Tuesdays, whatever. <laughs> the brain will make up the most ridiculous reasons. And I don't think that this only happens when you get all the way to Cotard syndrome. I would say people are dealing with this all the time. Your brain is coming up with the dumbest possible reasons and we are blind to it. We don't realize it's our brain making shit up. Yes, it is happening all the time, but the similarity. So, so I, I would argue that there is uh, a very strong lesson to take forward from the burning building example, the Cotard's example, and the example you just gave of the person who doesn't, uh, doesn't make long-term memories, right? Which is that logic does not matter when it comes up against strong emotion, right? So really strong affect, feeling, and emotion, limbic things. There's logic things in our brain and limbic things, which are basically about emotion, right? So in the first example, the burning building example, the idea is to, the reason I use that example is to make it something very immediate and very strong. There's not time, like you see the burning building, but there's not time, like what kind of person do I want to be like? That's a logical process that the brain does not have time to do right? Logic says building, burning, run other way. Emotion says person I love inside run towards, right? It's like, it's, that's, that's what, that's happens very, very rapidly. What logic said does, says doesn't matter. And the person runs towards the building, right? In the Cotard's example, it gets more complicated because there's, there's actually a, um, there's a verbal construct, right? There's an idea of I am dead, Right. So the thought is then, okay, how does a person logically come to that? Like, I must be dead because I haven't lived a good life or, and it just knows like the logic doesn't matter. The person believes that they are dead because they feel dead inside of themselves. They can't find any life. Right. If, if life comes from the person has a memory of like, what, what is feeling alive? feel like like for example this this man had a memory of like being a, a kid and like people holding him like he, he knew that existed right but he didn't have it in an adult in his adult life for years and years and years and and he didn't have a pet he didn't be like oh i can i can love a an animal right for various reasons he was just alone and then the life drained out of him so so the question i mean i think the ontological question about cotard syndrome is was he really dead if, if that was all gone, the things that make you feel alive, then is it really true that there's no life in him in the way that matters? Like in the, in the limbic, emotional way, I feel no life, right? Is that more powerful than, oh, my heart, you know, my, my heart stops beating. You know what I mean? My heart stops beating, so I die. So what is actually going on there is, is the, the primacy of emotion inside over Logic. And you might say he was gregarious, he was fun, so there was life in him, but he couldn't see it, he couldn't anchor to it. So his feeling of I am dead because nothing happens, but he could be socially facile, he didn't feel it inside. So in the sense that most matters, he was right. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. 
The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Dude, that's the most brutal thing I've ever heard anybody say. That is so gnarly. When I was reading the book, I was like, God damn. Now, I can't help but be fascinated. So if I'm right that this ultimately is about radical recontextualization, that you have to get the person who believes nobody loves them or that they are unworthy to, uh, if it's based on trauma, to re-understand the trauma. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, in this guy's case, the trauma is very slow. It's a very slow, long duration drip of just nothingness. Uh, Could we give him MDMA and take him to a old folks home. I don't know, somewhere where there's going to be people that would be so excited to talk to him. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, I feel so connected to these people and I can share my wisdom and they can share theirs. And whoa, like they're hungry for my attention. I'm hungry for theirs. Could we get him a puppy? Uh, like, would there be a way, even if it had to be pharmacological, where we could change his state so dramatically that he would feel alive again? Like, don't you secretly want to kidnap this guy and find sure. out? Sure, Absolutely. Do you think it would work if we did the MDMA old folks home puppy combo? I think yes. I cannot imagine that it wouldn't work in somebody. So isn't it worth trying with everybody? Right? I met this man in the hospital. A day in the hospital costs a lot of money. He's in the hospital for a long, long time. But I had no ability to do anything except give him two weeks of medicines when he left. I couldn't prescribe... Attach him to an old folks home. They they will make his life better and he will make their life better. Right? Get him a puppy. Let's get him out in the, let's get him out in the world. Have somebody go and talk to him all the time. Like I, as he could talk a lot when I sat down with him. I just didn't have time to do it for, for long. Mm. Let's do that. But we couldn't do any of that. We could spend thousands upon thousands of dollars having him in a useless hospital stay, but, but we weren't going to do anything to actually help him. So we just sent him home to the same loneliness that he came from. Could we do better than that? Yes. 
Is it shameful? Some shame is, is warranted. Is it shameful as a society that we do not? Yes. So coming back to the guy with short-term memory loss, the doctor with a pin in his hand, they greet, doesn't remember, but he still comes up with a logical explanation. What is the, the unifying thread there? If I'm understanding mm-hmm. correctly, it's just that when you have such a strong emotion, everything else just right. pales in comparison. Right. So, so think about that. What an amazing example it is, right? If I can't make long-term memories and we meet and shake hands and there's a pin in your hand, like that feels bad, right? Logically, I might think I gotta, okay, I see who you are and like, I'm not gonna trust you anymore, right? So, okay, but as soon as you walk out the door, the logic goes out the window, right? That's why, you know, that what seems like a ridiculous, what's called confabulation. Oh, I don't uh, trust people in white lab coats or it's Tuesday and I don't, you know, the person saying something, we say it's a ridiculous explanation or is it that it just totally doesn't matter, right? What's the difference of why, right? I, I know what I need to know. The logic doesn't matter. The emotion tells me what to know, which is don't shake your hand the last time that hurt, right? So think about that. Even the back mapping to a, a ridiculous logical explanation doesn't really matter because the logic doesn't matter. What matters is the feeling, mm. right? All right. Radical recontextualization. We put drugs on the table. Mm-hmm. Certainly talk therapy. Yes. Um, this feels like it's just an incredibly nuanced, difficult thing to do. But I would love to know if there is a standard procedure to get somebody who does not believe, who doesn't believe the things that would allow them to have a positive internal state again. Mm-hmm. How do you get them back moving in the direction of that without drugs first, and then we'll get into your thoughts on how drugs can be useful. Mm-hmm. Well, the first step is to assess, like, do they need drugs, right? Like if, sometimes if people are very, very depressed or having three panic attacks a day, I mean, like, I can't, we, we can't do the therapy part together, right? So, so with the presumption being the drugs aren't needed, right? Which most of the time they're not. We don't need medicine most of the time to get that person to a place where they can to access their internal state. Right. Then we come at it again. The idea is to have all the arrows in the quiver, right? Which is why you, you're referencing some of the novel medication arrows, right? And pathogens and psychedelics. And we're learning so much more about how can they help us, right? But even putting that aside, we're now thinking about the therapy arrows, right? There are different routes of approach to different people, right? Some people are very intellectualized, right? And then I might say, okay, the next time we're going to meet, I might think or might say to you, let's like really talk about how it works, you know? Like, it's it's like super interesting, right? Like how our brains and our brain biology works that like tells us often how we feel, right? Like, so so you're telling me like how just awful and ashamed of yourself you feel and how different and, and like, right, I felt the same way, right? Because we're human, right? So like, let's talk about all this human stuff that goes on inside of us and person might like really love that, right? Because when it's true, it's real and it starts to chip away at, like, I feel this way because there's something wrong with me or there's something bad about me, right? There may be other people who are not interested in that at all, not able to follow that at all. And then I might choose a very, very different route, right? So if you're telling me, for example, that you're unlovable, right? Then I might be interested, okay, I'm I'm thinking in my head from some of what you told me and, you know, you did say something, you said some positive things about, in elementary school, like, right. So, so let me like feel around that more. And then maybe you're going to start telling me about, you know, some teacher who was like so lovely to you and like so supportive, even though things were awful at home. Like now you're telling me that you are not unlovable, right? But I'm getting there through 
curiosity, right? It's going for what will be most helpful based upon who that person is, because what am I trying to do is come at ultimately the false premise, right? That you're either cursed or unlovable or things will never go well, or things go well in all facets of your life, but it will never be that way professionally, or things go that way in all facets of your life, but you'll never have good romance, right? Like we're trying to come at false lessons, and there are going to be different routes of how to get there, different maps, right, for different people, depending upon the idiosyncrasies of them and of what's happened to them. Mm. But it sounds like at least um, I have an emerging understanding that there is some universals at play here, which is uh, trauma leads people to get into a point where they no longer believe the things they need to believe in order to have a positive internal experience that in order to get them back there, I am going to have to find a way to get them to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. And it seems like extreme isolation is always going to be bad, that there really isn't, which I wanted there to be, but I, whatever's true is true. Uh, I really wanted there to be a way where somebody, even by themselves, even if nobody ever wraps themselves around them, that they would be able to um, leverage their frame of reference in order to build a new belief system about themselves, the world and values such that they could earn their own respect and get moving in a positive direction. Right. But it's some people can, right? Some people can do that. Many cannot. So do we leave behind the many who cannot? I mean, it's a societal choice, right? Mm. Some people can do what you just said, but it's a tall order. You can be pretty smart and pretty worldly and have a lot of friends and a lot of resources and totally not be able to do that. But let's talk about San Francisco. So San Francisco is, and look, I'm on the outside of this. I'm a headline reader. I want to be very clear. Uh, but having said that, it looks like compassion gone wrong. It's when you societally just want good things for people. You want to love them, uh, but you never hold them accountable. You never ask them to do anything. And so instead of saying, stop doing drugs on the street, you give them clean needles. And I get why that feels like a compassionate thing, but it seems to create more people on the street doing drugs, not less. Well, the idea of giving someone something without any accountability, that's not, a, that's not compassion, right? That's self-indulgence, right? Compassion helps people, but it also helps them help themselves, right? Even if you're just kind to somebody in the moment, like you hope they'll take that kindness away, even if you're not going to see them again, right? So, so clean needles absolutely can be compassion, right? If it's one reduction of suffering, right? Maybe, so, so needles that are dirty spread illness and illness can spread to other people who haven't used the needle, right? So, so there can be broader societal reasons, right? There can also be, look, we want to help you not get an illness that you might not recover from, right? While we're also trying to help you take a path where you don't have to be on the drug, right? So, so it's like, what is actually being done for someone, right? If what's being done for something is something that feels good for the doer, even if that doer is a society in the short term, then all that is, is self-indulgence. And you might say, well, if it puts a roof over someone's head for a night, okay, great. Yeah, that's better than the roof not being over their head for a night, but does it really matter when it's not there the next night, right? I mean, real compassion helps people help themselves, right? It doesn't just leave them flat. And I think that's the difference in a lot of what we do, like think of it fits with the short-term mentality of 
it is something for you, right? Like I was compassionate. I feel better about myself. It fits with the rapid throughput with the, you know, four to five patients in an hour for the internal medicine or family practice doctor and overuse of medicines, right? Because we don't stop and stand back, right? I mean, the thought was we have a medical system that's spending how many thousands of dollars a day to hospitalize my poor patient with Cotard syndrome. We're going to we're going to buy him a dog too, right? But maybe we could have saved like 95% of that money and done what he needed, right? That would help others. But like, we have to have a conception that doesn't have this kind of narrowness of blinders on and sees people in a societal context, sees our health in a psychological, personal, and societal context, whether it's physical health and mental health. And if we don't do that, the narrow frame of reference, all those blinders on uh, combined with cost containment and throughput ends up, it ends up with good throughput, right? But it's not making people healthier and it's ultimately not containing costs. It's very interesting. I want to go back to isolation. In the book, you talk about um, there was a guy that was in solitary confinement for 20 or 25 years. I mean, it was something absolutely outrageous. Um, What does somebody who's had that kind of isolation, what happens? The the story, I think, was was actually someone who one might have thought from all the socialization would have taken a different path. Than he, than he took. He took a path of kindness and help when absolutely everything he'd been taught would tell him to do exactly the opposite. So that, that was a story of actually like that there can be human beauty even when society is pushed so far against it. And of course he bore responsibility for many of the decisions in his life. So I'm not taking responsibility away from him, mm. but he still found goodness and made a really big difference in someone's life and then was so happy with himself because he, he hadn't hurt anybody. In fact, quite the opposite. He'd really helped someone. The, the idea of someone who's in solitary confinement for so long, and again, this, this isn't the place to try and think about what are the criminal justice elements and all, but really what you're talking about is isolation. And other than certain states or conditions that, that are sort of clinically relevant, but not found that often, right? This, basically, if we put those things aside, we are not built to be alone and to be isolated, right? We are built to be interconnected. And, you know, that's always been an issue. For humans, one way or another, mm. are we too interconnected and then that there's more conflict between us or can we be on top of one another but not interconnected? Like, you know, the aloneness that people describe in big cities where, you know, people are amongst other people but alone. So, so you know, th- there are many ways in which this can occur geographically or psychologically, even if not geographically. But ultimately, it is about having connection. It is about feeling connection. And if you're deprived of that for one reason, or whatever the reason may be, if you don't have it in your life, we begin to lose what what animates us. You know, we're built to be generative, right? We're built ultimately to try and make things better in the world around us. That's why we can nurture children. And, and you know, if we see a child on the street, we can help someone else's child too. Like there are many, many ways in which we're built to be interconnected and to make the world around us better. And if someone takes that away from you, That is awful. Probably, I've often thought that my patient with Cotard syndrome was so gregarious, right? If he were built with less of that, you know, and say he felt uncomfortable around people, I don't know, maybe this wouldn't have happened. What do I know, right? Maybe he would have read a lot of books and felt some sense of, of living through you know, adventures he was reading. I don't know, but, but he wasn't built that way. Like, you know, this was a guy who like loved seeing me each day, just as he loved ribbing me about the waste of my time. Like he was built for something he, he didn't get for far, far, far too long, which is why he didn't feel alive. It's like, it's never good to have that isolation from human connection and from human goodness, right? Flowing from one and to one. Hmm. All right. Do you see the movie, uh, Castaway? 
I did not. Oh my God, you have to see this movie. So, I don't see enough movies. I, know. Uh, I said, I'm going to say no to that. And you're going to go, oh, that's what's wrong with you? No, but the great news is, should you make the time, you have a real treat. So uh, Tom Hanks plays a character who ends up getting stranded on a deserted island. Mm-hmm. And he is isolated, if I remember right, for five years. Okay. And it's really fascinating. As a screenwriter, you have to find a way to make that interesting. And so a character not talking, it's just going to be way harder for them to show emotion. It's going to be harder for the audience to really latch on and pay attention. So they come up with a really great gimmick, which is that um, he ends up, there's a volleyball that washes ashore mm-hmm. with him because he's in a FedEx plane that crashes. Mm-hmm. And so a bunch of the FedEx items wash up. One of them is a volleyball. And he ends up putting a, a like print on it to make it look like a person and gives it like mm-hmm. a smiley face mm-hmm. and he ends up talking to mm-hmm. it and really developing a relationship with it and while that almost certainly was created as a device for the screenwriter to find a way for tom hanks to do something that the audience could relate to it's also pretty insightful in terms of what you would need to do to keep your sanity if mm-hmm. you're in isolation mm-hmm. and so i'm wondering if you knew somebody was going to be on a desert island or unfortunately, maybe more likely in solitary confinement, what are things that they could do? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. reading, let's say that that's off the table is journaling something like talking to yourself, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. remembering positive memories. Like mm-hmm. how would you have a person make themselves resilient to isolation? Mm-hmm. I'll answer that, but I got to say, I swear this is true. When you said the movie Castaway, an image came to my mind which was Tom Hanks holding that volleyball, right? And you can say, okay, I'm a psychiatrist, so that's maybe the, that's exactly the image that would come to my mind. But I think that a reason for that is maybe that was publicized and all, but, mm-hmm. but, but also because when I think about like Castaway and Prisons Lost on a Deserted Island, I think the lack of human connection, like that's what's most important, right? Like the volleyball is so important, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's perhaps how the person survived by being able to conceive of and in a sense bring to life an other, Right. Which is why journaling, which when we're writing and or speaking, there are different things that happen in our brains that reify, like kind of make things more real. So it is good to talk or to write as opposed to just thinking. And it's good to keep alive in a sense, in a very real sense, the people that we've taken inside of us. Right. So to sit and imagine people that are close to you that you won't be seeing on the deserted island or in solitary confinement. Right. If, if you had a good, experience, I'm making this up with your sister growing up, like think a lot about her, call her to mind, evoke her, right? Evoke you when you were with her as a child, evoke you as you are now, right? Keep real yourself as a person and others. Keep it real in words you may say to yourself, in words that you may write. The same way a person keeps track of time, we have to keep a structure, right? I remember reading at one point, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela describing right, what he had, you know, what was it like, you know, trying to survive and to try to keep some sense of the passage of time. And so we need a structure around the passage of time and the passage of days. We also need a structure inside about who am I and what's the constellation of the world in which I live in. And And when I read things like that, I'm also aware that the person is describing a rich inner life. Right. And, and, and they may not be describing like, I really cultivated my rich inner life because that's how I didn't lose myself. But the person that automatically is, is doing that. Right. And that's how they're keeping life inside of them when ostensibly life has been taken away from them. I mean, you know, not their physical life, but, but life as we, as we live it amongst other people. 
Brought up Nelson Mandela. Uh, I want to tie him to Viktor Frankl and the wife of um, Tom Hanks's character in Castaway. So you talked about calling forth people. So there's two things at play. There's other people in human connection. And that has been, I think, the biggest theme that we've talked about today is mm -hmm. the absolute crushing need for that. But there's also meaning and purpose. The two most impactful books probably that I've ever read are Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor mm -hmm. Frankl and Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela, mm -hmm. uh, both of whom I don't know that I am uh, impressive enough to do what they did. Like I, I stand in awe of mm -hmm. what they survived mm -hmm. in a way that scares yes. me for my own weakness. And I don't know if I could pull it off. I want to believe how does one put meaning to their life? How does one put meaning to their suffering? And how does meaning play with trauma? And is that part of this grand retextualization? Mm -hmm. Well, trauma can rob us of meaning and we need Why? meaning to survive. Why does it rob us of meaning? Because if the trauma makes you think that you are cursed or that nothing will ever work or that you will only be continually hurt, I could list the litany of things I've heard over 20 years for the next several hours. That, that tells a person, you don't get to have meaning. You can't have meaning. Meaning's not for you, right? It, 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 crushing, you use the word crushing. That's the right word to put to it. We need meaning. And meaning is, is not described or contained in the way we often, in a classical sense, contextualize people. Right? The idea that there are drives in us that there is an aggressive or self-assertion drive and there's a pleasure drive or a, a relief from suffering drive. So, so the thought that like, look, I want food and shelter and I want to be able to reproduce and I, I want someone to be there to take care of me if I make it to be older and there are limited resources and I have to, I have to fight for that, right? That's what the idea that there are those two drives would tell us. But that doesn't explain at all Victor Frankl or what Victor Frankl wrote. It does not explain at all Nelson Mandela or what Nelson Mandela wrote. I don't know about Tom Cruise's character's wife in Castaway. I'm presuming she wasn't a volleyball. So I don't, that I'll have to learn more about. But, 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 but look, I, I presume it's just along the same lines of like, you, you have to make meaning and feel meaning and, and trauma can take that away. And that's why resilience and perseverance, like these things are so important and we don't have an understanding or an answer to them. You know, there was a joke I heard at times in my training, which was, uh, if you find the resilience gene, go right to Stockholm, right? But there isn't, of course, go right, uh -oh, to, to Stockholm, go collect the Nobel, Nobel Prize. Prize got right? it, got it. But, but the joke was like, there's not a resilience gene, right? Like it, it's a complex constellation of, of genetic factors and mm. nurture factors and early childhood experience is so important. And, you know, neurochemical factors are, like there's so much there, right? But that's like the magic of humans who survive and thrive amidst adversity, right? It's resilience. And we can help to engender resilience in people. People find resilience through meaning, right? And I think that's the message of those books, right? And of the, the great thinkers, right? Is we, we have to have meaning in order to persevere, to be resilient. Like, you know, every morning, people in the concentration camp had to get up, right? They had to wake up and realize they were there. I mean, th there has to be an attachment to meaning Unreal. beyond the self. That could be other people or it could be God or it's something greater than self, but we can help people have that meaning. Do we do nearly enough to help people have that meaning? No, 
We sent my patient home from the hospital with Cotard syndrome alone, with no plan for anything other than to be alone. So, mm. no, we're not helping people in the way that we need to. So that trauma, it can be other things too, but in my very strong opinion, by and large, trauma drives people to places of feeling no meaning and therefore no worth and, and often therefore no drive to continue. 